Hello and welcome to this week's Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Law in Sport. In this week's show, we have a special recording from the Soccer X Global Convention in Manchester, in which Dan Jones, the lead partner of the Deloitte Sports Business Group, and Mark Cavell, head of sport at Mills and Reeves, compare and contrast the business models of Manchester City and Manchester United. I was lucky enough to moderate that session, and it was an interactive discussion that focused on the business models, the talent, infrastructure investment, the global commercial growth and fan engagement. We would like to thank SoccerX for giving us permission to use the recording from the Global Convention in Manchester. It was a great session to be involved with. I hope you enjoy the show. I'm very privileged to be sitting with Mark Covell, the head of sport, a partner at the law firm Mills and Reeves. He's also a CAS arbitrator um, and he's one of our uh, Law and Sports editorial board members. I'm also uh, privileged to be joined by Dan Jones, the lead partner of the Deloitte Sports Group. So uh, to start off with, Dan's going to just talk about the uh, Football Money League that uh, Deloitte uh, publish each year and how uh, Man City and uh, Man United have performed in that league. Sure, thank you very much. Um, well, thank you very much, everybody. I think um, we've got the dubious honour of keeping you from your first drink of the evening. Um, I think we're up against uh, Fabio Cannavaro and Carlos Alberto. So if you're one of the people in this room who's expecting to see World Cup winners, um, you're in the wrong, wrong room and you can discreetly uh, leave at the back. And I'm sure Fabio and Carlos Alberto are saying the same. You know, if you're expecting to see Dan Jones and Mark Cavell, you need to, <laughs> need to leave and um, go around to the other room. So the Football Money League is something that we've, uh, we've been doing now for, for 18 years. Um, and it's a simple ranking of the top clubs in the world um, by revenue. And when we first started doing it, um, I don't think we'd have probably... We, we always felt that Manchester is the greatest uh, city in the world for football because, you know, England's got the Premier League. Um, and if you look at uh, where the heartbeat of, uh, of English football is, it's in the northwest. And if you look at where the heartbeat of the northwest is, it's Manchester. So we've always been very proud of being a group that's based in Manchester, but we probably never envisaged that, that Manchester would have two clubs in the top six in our money league. Um, and we were saying when we were planning this that it, it was the only city that had two clubs in the top ten. And then we realised that actually London um, sort of was snuck in there as well. Um, and Milan's had a go in the past. But uh, we certainly, this, this time round, Manchester City, Manchester United, both in the top six. And, and hopefully what we're going to do today is talk about the contrasting models and fortunes of those two clubs. So if you look over the history of our money league, um, you know, Manchester United have had the number one slot for the first eight years. They've never... Uh, this is the lowest they've ever been at number four. By contrast, uh, Manchester City, for seven of those years that United was at number one, weren't in the top 20. And this is the highest they've ever been. So you can see the sort of momentum shifts that are going on uh, sort of through our, through our money league. But we've got various topics we're going to talk about. And I think the intention is to hopefully uh, give you guys a good chance to interact because um, you've sat here and listened a lot today. And it'd be good if you get to ask a bit more. Yeah, to reiterate that, if you do have any questions throughout the session, because it is a session at the end of the day, it would be great if it's interactive. So just please put your hand up and we'll come to you. Obviously, we need to keep it moving. So um, less statements and more questions would be great, because I know there's a tendency for people to do that. Um, so, so to start off with, we're going to take a look at uh, the contrasting ownership models of the two clubs. So Mark, can you start off and tell us a bit about the Manchester City model? Yeah, for sure. Um, well. I guess Manchester City is what you'd probably call, or was, what you would call a, a pretty boring standard benefactor model. 
there were no Delaware trusts uh, hanging around. Uh, we just had Sheikh Mansour and his Abu Dhabi United Group Investments and Development uh, Company uh, that acquired all the shares of, uh, of Manchester City Football Club. And I think it's important to note that uh, they actually acquired shares. So they didn't put the money in by way of loans, as we saw with Chelsea and Abramovich, which actually gave a good sort of financial base to, to the club. But, uh, but since May 2013, it's got a bit more exciting, uh, as exciting as corporate family structures can get, um, in that they uh, have put City Football Group Limited between the investment company from Abu Dhabi and the actual football club. And that, uh, that uh, City Football Group has now transformed into a truly global business because it's also got uh, shares in footballing clubs in America, in Australia, and Japan. And indeed, it owns uh, Manchester City's latest football club as well. So what we're seeing is quite a global, modern structure that uh, this old business, I mean, Manchester City itself has been running for well over a century. So it's a mixture of the old and the new, really. So how does that compare with Man United then? Um, so a very, a very different picture, really. I mean, the, uh, if we so if we go back to the, the, the pictures of the um, of the two uh, ownership groups, I mean, that there's a huge banner uh, in the Etihad Stadium um, that proclaims "Thank you, Sheikh Mansour," and you don't see a similar banner um, in the Stretford end at Old Trafford. Um, but so there's very, very different uh, approaches, very, very different bases on which on which people have come in. Um, just interested in a uh, little bit of feedback from the group. Um, in the nine years before the Glazer family um, acquired Manchester United, how many times did Manchester United win the Premier League in those nine years? Anybody want to have a guess? Sorry, what was that? Uh, eight? Five. In the nine years <coughs> since the Glazer family acquired Manchester United, how many times did they won the Premier League? Correct. They reached three Champions League finals as opposed to one in the nine years um, before they come third, the two years before the Glazer family came in. So the, there has been success on the pitch and you know, that's, that's fairly inevitable because actually whatever business model you want to run in terms of owning a football club, you want to be successful on the pitch. You know, Manchester United is a phenomenal machine in terms of generating money, but it can't keep doing that without success on the pitch and you've, you've seen uh, this summer <coughs> You know that the, the business model that had been very very constrained in terms of player spending, um, without Champions League football, but with big expectations from sponsors, big expectations from fans, you know the club has really gone out there so how, and spent some money. So how does the ownership model then affect the performance on the, on the pitch? Well, I think that it's quite interesting. I mean, if you look at the ownership model, so the when Manchester United was first acquired, it went from being a listed company, so very clear. Um, but seen by fans as quite cumbersome in the transfer market because it was a listed company. So they had to be quite public in their dealings, had to you know, announce things to the stock exchange, couldn't have the share price moving around on, on player speculation. They had to you know, inform the stock exchange. So in a lot of ways, Manchester United fans were quite keen for the club to go private and be able to conduct its business more privately. They just didn't want the model that they got, which was a, a highly leveraged model with owners who they... You know, didn't understand why those owners were coming in to own a football club in Manchester when that wasn't any part of their heritage. So they would have loved a you know, local Mancunian billionaire to buy. Um, and at that time, it was a very uh, sort of quite an impenetrable model. It was quite difficult to discern 
how things were earned, how the club was financed and so on. And we've now sort of turned full circle in that probably Manchester United's finances now are as transparent as any football club in the world because with the New York listing, you know, those, um, those documents they have to file for the New York Stock Exchange are extremely revealing. I mean, there's a lot of uh, quite impenetrable sort of standard financial markets and stuff in there. But once you work your way through that, there's a load of very good information about how the club runs, how it expects to do, and so on. I'll take your word for that. <laughs> um, I, I remember going to a talk with David Conn talking about Man City, and it's interesting that you say about the, the efficiency of the business model. And, you know, he was a, a Man City fan. You know, he said that, you know, he sort of kind of indicating that he sort of fell out of love, if you read his book, uh, Great, Greater Than God, Richer Than God, I think. Um, and he was saying that... Um, he sort of fell out of love with the club because he's got different owners, different players, uh, a different stadium now. Um, but he said the one thing that he admired was the efficiency and the professionalism of the business. And so we've got two different models here, but both of them, you're saying, are efficient businesses, which I think is something, you know, speaking to people in the conference hall today, is something that, uh, compared to many of the football clubs that are in existence, particularly in the UK, I'm not sure the same could be said. No, well... Football is big business, you know, I mean, that's the reality, isn't it? I think a lot of people, fans probably, you know, hark back to the good old days of the win, where the way football clubs were run, but perhaps they weren't always the good old ways. And we're going to come on in a minute to look at the, uh, the revenues. Um, and I think one thing we'll see with Manchester City in particular is just the rapid rise it's had in, uh, you know, in commercial revenues, the, the new sort of sponsorship deals it does. It, it's run as a business. So do you want to go into that in a bit more detail? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think these, these slides which come from Dan's uh, annual report really do sort of show uh, a fascinating picture. You can see that uh, where, where things stand in 2013, you know, in terms of revenues, Manchester City is two-thirds you know, two of the size of Manchester United. But you can also see where it's come from over the last five years. And it's, it's a sort of a huge growth curve that Manchester City has undertaken. And again, you can look at where the different commercial, sorry, where the different revenue streams are. We've got obviously uh, match day revenue, we've got broadcasting revenue, we've got commercial revenue. And broadcasting in the Premier League doesn't tend to change too much. It's quite a tight distribution model. So uh, the clubs at the bottom get you know, pretty well within uh, the monies that the clubs at the top do. The way you can make a bit more money is obviously if you finish higher in the league, or if you, you're seen on the television more. And I think both these clubs are incredibly successful on the pitch and therefore are always seen on the television. These are the games that people want to watch when these two teams play. Um, and typically they finish pretty near the top of the ladder as well, the two of them. Um, the difference really in broadcasting uh, revenues is if you, uh, if you make it into the Champions League. So for Manchester City, yes, they got into the last 16 for the first time uh, in the last campaign. Really, their model is to try and progress further and to try and make more revenues from there. But if you look at the commercial income, if you, unfortunately, if you go back to 2009 on this slide, the amount of the, the blue chart that was made from commercial revenue was probably about 20 million. The I, <coughs> there's the opportunity, I think, by next season for them to almost 10 times, um, you know, make 10 times the amount of commercial revenue than they did five years ago. That's a huge amount of growth. And I think that's part of this efficient model that we're seeing with Manchester City is that they've gone global. 
So they're able to attract sponsors like Nissan, who want to be seen not just in this country, but also in America. They want to be associated with women's football as well as the men's football. They want to be seen in Australia. So there's opportunities there that this business model opens up for Manchester City. And really, the last chunk of the pie, if you like, is the match day. And really, you know, this is where you've got to tip your hat to Manchester United. I mean, they've got a huge advantage by uh, the size of fan base and the size of uh, Old Trafford. So they can generate a lot more match day uh, income at the moment. Uh, but then again, Manchester City do work hard to actually keep season tickets low, keep them affordable. Um, so there's always a sort of balance there between the business side of making the most you can and also trying to satisfy your customers. So Man United on the band, not in the Champions League, high ticket prices. Yep. Tell us about their revenues. So I think, um, you know, as, Mark, as Mark said, you know, the broadcasting to a certain extent is outside the club's hands. Um, the Premier League does the central Premier League deal which is a great strength of that model and that Premier League environment is, is definitely the best one for any club to be in. I think that, that that will be talked about a number of times over the over the days at SoccerX. Match day, um, when the Glazers came in and took over, um, they saw that as underutilised. Um, they worked hard on sort of re-segmenting the stadium, um, getting more price points in there and pushing the price points up where they felt they could get uh, you know, get the prices up and still get people uh, in the ground. So the, the, the ground continues to sell out. The, the, the bit, though, that perhaps is most surprising, I guess, to people about the, uh, about the business success of the club since the takeover has been the commercial side, because Manchester United was the gold standard of uh, commercial revenue generation in world football. You know, it had a great shirtfront sponsorship deal. It had an amazing deal with Nike, you know, £13 million a year, an inconceivable amount of, uh, of money to start on. And I think that the, the deal ran to sort of £20 million by, by its end. Um, and that was seen as just, you know, really, where, well, where are these guys going to generate more, more return? And actually, the bit of the business that they've really transformed, that has been within their gift and within their control, because they're not constrained by what the Premier League do or by the capacity of a stadium, has been the commercial model. They've reinvented the commercial model for a football club uh, in the Premier League in terms of doing deals by region and by sector and, and sort of slicing it up into a matrix in a way that people just did not believe they would be able to do. So that's been, a, been the source of you know, Manchester United's kind of keeping ahead of the pace. Um, in terms of what happens next, uh, obviously Manchester City keep going from strength to strength and United will obviously want to keep pace and keep ahead of them as well as sort of trying to catch up to Real Madrid and Barcelona and so on. Um, these numbers that you see here are 12-13. So 13-14 <coughs> you had the new Premier League TV deal. 14-15, you've got the new A on shirt front deal. 15-16, you've got um, the Adidas deal coming in. So United's still got a few sources of growth there. The bit that they're obviously missing is the Champions League, and that's the bit they'll desperately want to correct. And who, who was responsible for, for, for sort of devising that sort of innovative... Um, so, uh, sort of Glazer family-led, but through the London office, through Edward Wood, Richard Arnold... Um, those guys have been sort of big architects behind it. I think we've got some questions from the floor as well. Got the front. It is. Yeah, it's uh, Tim Cleverton from uh, Tim Cleverton from Adfis. I'm just uh, interested in the Man City um, commercial side because there's been quite a lot of talk about the uh, the deal for the uh, the deal with Etihad um, for the stadium and also I think the shirts as well um, being like. Uh, bigger than one would expect um, 
like uh, for uh, for that type of um, for that type of advantage, uh, but like almost like a gift because it's part of the. Is that included in your commercial figure? Um, I mean, I'm not. I think it will I'm, for twelve to twelve. Yeah, 13, uh, yeah, yes. yeah. No, it, it is. <coughs> it yeah. is. So it's in, included in the commercial it's about revenue four, figure. Forty million a year. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think at the, at the time that deal was struck, yes. that was seen as a pretty full valuation and there was lots of speculation about, you know, would that get adjusted through financial fair play yes. um, to be an arm's length value? Actually, in, in the time that's gone since, in terms of some of the other deals that have been struck, whether it's um, United's deal with Chevrolet or others, yeah. it doesn't look... Um, as out of whack as it did at the time it was done. So yeah. no one knows the ins and outs of uh, what was or was not adjusted in yes. the financial fair play calculation. No, people just know the result of that um, you know, review by UEFA. They don't know the ins and outs of what was adjusted, but actually that deal looks a lot more uh, on market than it did. Yes. I mean, given what's happened since it was, uh, since it was obviously the success that they've had, now they would be able to, yeah. Okay. I think we have one more. This the gentleman behind. That's okay. Well, I just going to follow up on that, that question because I think uh, oh, sorry, if you look at... Just say your name and... Oh, my name from? is Kel Stordell. Um, and um, I'm just trying to follow up on that question because how, do you, how does the financial fair play have the impact on, on the two clubs? Uh, obviously, Man City, I can almost guess, I think it's more difficult with, uh, with Man United. Um, and I think also, isn't it fair to say that, okay, if, if it's 40 million who generate out the Latiat uh, stadium, is that fair then to say they have success in terms of the commercial? While I think Man U seems to be a little bit more a, a proper business model, or am I just assumption, assume something which is not right? Well, I suppose you know, this is in euros, what you're seeing on there, but it's nearly 170 million uh, euros that uh, Man City made on commercial uh, monies in that year of which therefore 50 million euros was for Metiad. So there's still a lot of other commercial income coming in for sure. And we, we will look actually at some of the other business partners they've got. Uh, we'll also look a bit at uh, financial fair play. Um, yes, we don't know exactly what uh, UEFA uh, charged City with on financial fair play. There's speculation it could have been the Etihad deal and revaluation. Um, speculation it could have been an assignment of image rights to a, a wholly owned subsidiary. Um, it could have been this sort of valuation of employee, you know, players' contracts pre-2010. But we'll maybe talk a little bit about the effect of financial fair play in a few minutes. Just, sorry, just to chip in on financial fair play, I mean, um, Manchester City obviously very publicly sanctioned. Uh, Manchester United, most profitable football club in the world, therefore not um, endangered by UEFA financial fair play. Of course, Manchester United um, not affected by UEFA financial fair play this season because you're only affected if you're in a UEFA competition, and they're not. So, uh, we mentioned the fans. Uh, a lot of revenue comes from the fan base. How do the... Dan, do you want to start with... How does the, what's the profile of the, the Man United fan base? Um, well, I mean, we could go down our road of stereotypes here, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, there won't be any in this city and so on and so on. Um, but uh, actually, in all seriousness, I mean, Man Manchester United uh, claim over 650 million fans worldwide, um, which is a fairly phenomenal number. Um, and you very quickly then get into, well, define fan um, and, and what does that mean? But what you can say with absolute certainty is that they sell out Old Trafford, which is the biggest ground in the country. Um, not all of those people uh, you know, drive from 100 miles away, despite the stereotype. 
Um, and you know, they, they have a terrific fan base all around the world. Anywhere you go, um, you find people who are passionate about Manchester United. The, the challenge for the clubs, the challenges for all the big clubs really is, is how do you monetize that? So, you know, we looked at some numbers that on the face of it look very impressive. You know, Manchester United getting up towards uh, 400 million pounds in revenue. You then put it in the context of having 650 million fans who, you know, for a hell of a lot of them, it's one of the most important things in their life. And you're thinking, well, you're barely managing to get a dollar a year on average out of those fans. So, you know, there's probably a bit of growth still to go for. The trick, of course, uh, as football clubs know, is how do you actually do that when so much of what your club is about is available free online to, to anyone who wants to, uh, to tap into it. So, yeah, the, the, the fan base for Manchester United, um, extremely well established, held up pretty well through a quarter of a century of no success. Um, so any, I think any estimations of their sort of uh, demise based on one seventh place finish are probably hugely overdone. And where do you think the, they, they, they acquire that information from? How is it, how is it constructed? Uh, you, you, would have, I mean, you would have to ask them that. They, they would tell you that they do it through you know, a very reputable market research agency and using very good methods and so on. I think you know, the, whether it's 650 million or 800 million or 500 million sort of doesn't matter. The, the, the point is that they are sort of indisputably right up there in the top, sort of top three, four best supported clubs in the world. The trick is, you know, as I say, how do you translate that into, into business success? Man City have been doing a good job of engaging with their fans and how does, how the global, we're going to come on to that, but you know, the global strategy is, is important to both clubs. How does uh, Man City compare? Well, it doesn't compare as well, I'm afraid, on those, <laughs> on those sort of numbers. But I mean, dazzling, it's, it's, it's a developing business. I mean, you know, the Man City 10 years ago is, is very different from the Man City we see today. And I think almost with the, uh, with the Sheikh's investment in the, in, the, in the club and with its uh, ambitions to become a truly global model, we've seen you know, so much change. And it, it's change in a fairly established marketplace. So. I think Man City, for example, were probably one of the, the first clubs to really go social, to really get into uh, social media. Um, and their website, for example, translated into 13 different languages to try and really build on its global uh, success in this platform. So you know, 15 million Facebook likes, 2 million Twitter followers, these sort of things. I think United have probably come in a little bit later, but have, uh, have shown that they do have a bigger, uh, you know, bigger fan base worldwide. So they're now up to uh, you know, 3 million Twitter followers. I actually had a look for you, Sean. You've got 2,000. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, yeah. I think we've got slightly different budgets. Um, <laughs> we're obviously using different agencies. Uh, I'll revise that. Thanks. <clears throat> Appreciate that. Uh, anyway, swiftly moving on. I would have Laura's balls at 5,000, so <laughs> slightly better. So collectively seven. Anyway, enough of that. Um, Part of uh, any sort of global growth, you need partners. You know, a lot of the guys are out there in the hall um, or speaking here today. Starting with Man City. No? Wrong, wrong street, Man United. Man United. <coughs> there you go, Chevrolet. Gives it away. Someone switched the slides on me, obviously. <laughs> um, starting with Man United. I can't see it from here because it's too far away. Um, start with Man United. How does their sort of global uh, partnership model work? Um, so actually, I mean, it, it's, it's even more confusing now than it used to be because um, on, on the, the day that, or the day before, I think, Man City announced their Nissan deal, 
Manchester United announced a Nissin deal, <laughs> which um, so Nissin is up there as one of those logos if you can read it from uh, from where you're sat. Um, but I guess this sort of shows how um, how football has developed and how top level football has developed over the last you know 20 years, but but an ever accelerating pace on, on this side of things. So you know it's only a generation ago since. <coughs> teams first had shirt front sponsorships and it's moved on very very rapidly from there to the point where you know you've got Chevrolet doing the shirt front you've got Nike soon to be Adidas doing the kit and you've got Aon who, who were sort of record-breaking shirt front sponsors and were displaced from that relationship and a deal was uh, brought to a close with DHL and they took over you know the training complex and, and, the, and the training kit um, deal you know so the the the, the clamor from big brands to be associated with the biggest clubs is amazing. And then Manchester United's model, which they've been incredibly successful about, has been to introduce a huge diversity of partners in terms of the industry sectors they cover, and also in some cases to have more than one partner within the same industry sector, which was seen as something you just could not do. Just, you just, life doesn't work that way. And they managed to regionally subdivide and have you know, a different telecoms partner, for example, in in different markets and yeah, have made that work and made it generate a huge amount of money for them. So it's a, it's a very, very fast running, professional, global machine and a huge presence out of London um, and out and now into other territories as well, just selling uh, you know, commercial deals for Manchester United. And it, it, would you say that's the American influence? Because you know, if you look at the, the, the big American sports teams, they're very good at carving up their rights all, all over the world and, and generating different partnerships for drinks, etc. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of if, if you look at uh, the business of Manchester United and what has really changed under the, uh, the American ownership, that, that's been the most noticeable change, has been the, the huge push on commercial and the, and the success that that's had. Yeah, and I'd, I'd how, say... How Man City <laughs> Well, I think, as I said before, I mean, you know, the tenfold increase in your revenues in five years is, is, is a good output, but I think they're still, you know, catching up a little bit on, uh, on Manchester United. Um, but maybe the difference is, again, that they're really pushing a global brand. So there's going to be some sponsors that are very interested in, you know, sporting a team in Australia, maybe one in New York. There's other ones that actually want to have the whole global uh, brand. And I think, again, it's important, there's some sponsors that want to appeal to men and to women. So I think Manchester City actually taking the ladies' team on really adds to their armoury. So um, <clears throat> obviously, City have picked a number of what I would call developed leagues. You know, they're not as developed as the Premier League or the Bundesliga, but around the world, you know, the Australian League, the J League in Japan, and now we're seeing the MLS as well. These are solid leagues that have got growth. So I think you know, their, their commercial intention is to really try and focus on some of those bigger global opportunities. And I think, it, I think it's really brave what Manchester City have done because it's very different to Manchester United in terms of the, the, the four club logos you can see out there for Manchester City. You know, they, they have got other City football, City football Group football club brands up there. So they are you know, one of the big things about being a big football club and one of the things that gives you commercial power and revenue is being successful on the pitch. Uh, Manchester United have always shied away from, since the sort of experiment many, many, many years ago, which shows my age with the, the basketball team and so on, Manchester United ever since then have shied away from, you know, sticking the Manchester United badge on any other club or team other than the team that runs out at Old Trafford. Manchester City have gone for a very different model. Um, 
and you know if they have four clubs being successful simultaneously in four different countries and you know clubs even in the in in England being successful in you know both genders phenomenal how you know if there's a club who's struggling within that that affects the brand and the commercial power will be will be really really interesting to see but I think it's a it's a very very interesting and exciting model what Manchester City are going for and can you see Man United adopting that or embracing it slightly <coughs> I would be surprised but then again I'm the same person who said that I didn't think that Manchester City I thought Manchester City had enough to do with their main brand and said that I couldn't see them buying an MLS franchise three days before they bought an MLS franchise so <laughs> I'm perhaps not the best person to ask. I'm going to ask you to go and take a seat actually, <laughs> second thoughts. Um, so we've talked about the commercial aspects all the money essentially means that you can invest it in talent. Dan? Yeah so I mean this Probably this shot, in a way, um, shows uh, sort of a bit, a bit of the other side of this sort of uh, balance of power shift, or whatever you want to call it. So, you know, the, the, the photo of uh, Di Maria there is uh, a few days old. The photo of Sergio Aguero is a few years old, um, uh, and that reflects, I think, what's been uh, what's been going on in terms of the two clubs' recruitment policies. So, Manchester United spent very little money net over the past four or five years in it, sorry, very little money in the context of being the size of football club they are, they'd spent very little money. It can, in the context of 99% of football clubs around the world, it was a huge amount of money. But compared to that sort of particular peer group, it was not very much money. They've now spent um, this summer net about half as much again as they'd spent in the previous five years. So they spent about 80 odd million net in five years, and then they spent about 120 million net um, over the course of this summer. Whereas Manchester City has spent about 500 million net in the preceding five years and have actually had a, a relatively quiet summer. Um, and, you know, as ever in football, a part of that just reflects how they got on last year. You know, Manchester City won the title. Um, pretty pleased with how they're doing, their squad and where they're at. Uh, and Manchester United were in what for them for the last 20 years has been a position they haven't found themselves in. And they were very, very keen to reverse that and uh, get back to where they feel they belong. So different pressures causing them to behave differently. Again, we're going to keep coming back to, I think, <laughs> FFP. Yeah. Um, How has that affected their spending? Well, it, it's had an effect. I mean, basically, they, uh, they were charged by uh, UEFA for breaching the, uh, the break-even indicator. Again, we don't have the exact details of, uh, of what went on. Um, and I think very sensibly, probably for both parties, they settled. You know, I think UEFA were very keen to get all nine clubs that they, uh, they charged to settle. Uh, City were, were one of them. Um, and I say sensible because it's given them certainty. You know, they know what their fines are, they know what the constraints are on salaries going forwards, they know what their constraints are on squad sizes. Um, and I think they felt they could probably live with it because if they've been on a very positive trend, coming for some pretty hefty losses, to, uh, to a position where they may well hit profitability. Um, so I think that was their bad year last year. And when you sort of look at what Financial Fair Play did, okay, it said City couldn't spend more than 60 million euros in the last transfer uh, window. But I think they had a world-class squad uh, with a manager that seemed pretty happy, just won the Premier League. It, it probably wasn't a major issue. Um, they couldn't spend more on salaries for the next two years than what they've spent previously. But the, they've got the highest wage levels <laughs> it is in the, in the Premier League anyway. So, and. And I think when you look back at maybe some of that uh, initial spending that City did within the last five years, there's a certain type of player that you can buy to come to Manchester City when this project started. Um, you know, 
you have to pay them a lot. Um, but I think once you start getting success, once you start winning cups, once you start winning the league, once you start getting into Europe, there's another reason why the top talent wants to come here. Uh, and that's what we've seen. So I think the headline figure's been a, a 60 million euro fine on both Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain. But the reality is it was 10 million out of last season's campaign. It's 10 million out of this season's campaign. And if they be, are compliant and they've been brought back into line if they needed to be, then the other 40 million won't be spent. So 10 million and 10 million to actually buy some certainty going forwards, it's, it's pocket change for you, sure. Of course. <laughs> I can get that marketing agency, can't I? Um, the, so we've, they've been sanctioned, or reached a settlement, I should say. Settled, yeah. Stand corrected. <laughs> um, they've reached a settlement around FFP. There's certain FFP uh, essentially ex exemptions that's on youth development and investment in facilities. How oh, and what have Man City invested in? Yeah, well, I think you can see two circular things in that picture, really, or maybe three. But uh, one's obviously the Etihad, and part of uh, City's investment plan going forwards is to, to increase the capacity. So this season to take it from a 47,000 stadium to a, a 54,000 stadium. Um, and there is the potential there to, uh, to take it up to a 60,000 stadium. So City are ambitious, they you know, have investment plans in, the, in that particular facility. Uh, but I guess what impresses me more is the, the City Football Academy. So you can see there it's, it's an 80, psyche, eight, sorry, 80 acre field. Or it used to be some pretty rundown areas in the, the east of Manchester that's been transformed by about £100 million worth of investment. And that's exactly what UEFA are looking for. They don't want investments by clubs beyond their means on short-term things like players. They want to see long-term investments on youth, on community, on infrastructure. And you know, that's an amazing facility, 16 pitches, a 7,000 uh, you know, reserve team uh, stadium as well. It's got a school on it, on, you know, be one of the best schools in Manchester, I suspect. And at the moment, it's bringing in a lot of the talent from the Northwest. There's obviously restrictions on bringing in young talent uh, from around the world, as Barcelona have found out. But there's no doubt they will start to hoover up more of the talent from, uh, from Britain. Um, state of the art. And this is great for Manchester, isn't it? It's, it's, you know, being both of you and, and, the, and, and today's session, as I should have mentioned earlier, was uh, sponsored by Pro Manchester. Um, you must be delighted with, with that sort of money and, um, and infrastructure yeah, being bought here. Well, I think there's always been talk when Abramovich came into Chelsea or Sheikh Mansour came into City. You know, would they hang around? You know, is it just a new toy? Would they then go on to Formula One or something like this? And uh, you know, I think what we're seeing here is somebody who's interested in Manchester for the long term. You know, to actually invest 100 million off the pitch you know, is very serious. And uh, Man, Man United have obviously got a much bigger stadium. What, what, what have they been doing in terms of investing in facilities and, and So obviously, I mean, somewhat putting the shade in, in, in this respect and the investment in facilities. And, and if people are visitors to Manchester and they haven't yet had the chance, it is worth going out and seeing what City are doing. There's uh, two of the hugest cranes you'll ever see in your life um, out, out putting those, helping put those extra 12,000 seats in and the, what's going on across the road from there with the, with the campus is, is phenomenal as well. So Manchester United, you know, not so, anything quite so dramatic. Um, again, the, you know, the expansion of Old Trafford is something that gets talked about every now and again, but it, the, the feasibility of that is, is quite challenging. It's quite a difficult site to build out any further from where it, from where it is already. But they still spent you know, an eight-figure sum 
last year on facilities. Uh, the facilities they've got at Carrington, um, training, medical, etc., are are sort of second to none. So they're they're being caught in that respect, but that's because they're already up a, a very very high standard. I think we may have a question. Yeah, it's me again, Kels <laughs> Um I'm just kind of curious about. Um, I mean, it's two great teams. It's a, a city with a great rivalry. Um, there's yet still taking a lot of things outside of the city, uh, become a global brand. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit on how the impact on the local community is? I mean, obviously there's a fan rivalry, but I mean, what about business? Uh, are they are they into the local business, or is it a is it a problem, or is it just a great uh, achievement that you have two teams in a, in such a city, or, or how does that work? Because we're all talking about you know there's always an issue or there's a danger of that. You know, fans get alienated, and you know, brands doesn't really want to be associated with it. And is that a problem, or is that just a gift? <laughs> no, I think I, I think it um, it would be uh, wrong to say there's never any um, sort of discontent among local fans about fans coming in from from outside. And I think that's something that Manchester United fans have got used to over a period of 20 years, and Manchester City fans are having to get used to sort of at speed at the moment. But Still, fundamentally, they are very, very strongly supported locally. You go into the stadiums, they still have a very local feel. The, the investment that Manchester City have made in the community, the investment that Manchester United make in the community is still very substantial. You know, I, I talked about having 650 million fans worldwide and generating less than a dollar from them. Um, the 75,000 who go through Old Trafford uh, every match day generate a hell of a lot of the revenue for Manchester United. And so, you know, there's a vested commercial interest in looking after your more local fans as well. And in terms of the wider city and the business community, um, you know, just the, the, the fact that this event is here in, in Manchester and the, the, the partners of it who brought it here are who they are shows how much the, the, the political and business uh, class of, of Manchester are very, very proud of what football does for our city. It's a huge part of, you know, what defines us in the world. So uh, the two clubs are a great part in that. That's a, good, a great question. Oh. And we've got one more at the back. Just ruined my segue. It's fine. Thank you. Adrian Peterson, Football Industries MBA, uh, University of Liverpool. Um, would you say that the uh, financial fair play has made football clubs more commercially aware in terms of what you've been talking about? Um, or was the trend to generate more, to increase the revenues coming from the commercial side? Was the trend already there prior to the um, introduction of the financial fair play? And secondly, what can smaller football clubs learn from the likes of Manchester City and Manchester United, smaller football clubs that aren't global brands? What can they take from all these global partnerships? And you know, what can they take from that in terms of increasing their revenue generation from commercial side? Oh, yeah. I, I think it's fair to say that football had was becoming more and more business-like anyway, uh, with or without financial fair play. I think financial fair play was probably brought in more because UEFA looked at, uh, back in 2010, 2011, and looked at the state of the game, and it was overheating. You know, the, uh, the top league of all their members were, were hemorrhaging about 1.7 billion euros a year. So I think it's brought a bit of common sense in, into the game. Um, I think what other clubs can learn is that um, it's investment for the long term is, is, is worthwhile. I mean, that's what I really see from financial fair play. 
if you invest in the youth and start to grow more of your own talent, if you invest in your infrastructure, um, then you're going to have a better outcome. The difficulty is that most fans want instant gratification with football. Another question? Uh, I'm Damir Yossi from Time Out's uh, sports consultancy in Cairo. And the question here is about uh, when do you expect that Manchester United will tackle Barcelona and Real Madrid next season, the season before, because the commercial development of Manchester United, especially with the last two years with, uh, with uh, Sheffield and Adidas, I think it, it may be the time that Manchester United regain its old pos position on the top of the money league. Um, it's a good question. Uh, I think that um, it, w it won't be in our next edition, I don't think, which covers the, 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 the season that's just finished. And I don't think it will be for this season because of the absence of Champions League football. Um, so we've probably got a couple of years, couple of years to wait. But uh, yeah, I think in our, our 2017 edition, which will cover the next season, 2015-2016, if Manchester United are back in the Champions League with the Adidas deal, the TV deal, uh, both on Champions League and, and Premier League, and um, the Chevrolet deal, they'll they'll be there or thereabouts. I think it uh, you know might just see them uh, get back ahead of uh, ahead of Real Madrid. But you know Real Madrid and Barcelona aren't going to stand still. Um, that that's the thing. I mean the, the the pace. And someone was asking about you know has financial fair play encouraged clubs to go more for it on on generating revenue? I think it has, um, but the pace was already there. You know the. the at the end of the day, these, these clubs are competing to try and win football matches and win trophies. And the best way to do that is to have better footballers. And the best way to get better footballers is to have more revenue to be able to, to buy them up. And, and financial fair play just really forced that issue in terms of you had to have the revenue to get better players. You couldn't just do it through uh, you know, the benefaction of an owner. And there's also uh, the, 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 the broadcasting market in Spain, the state aid issues and so forth, they're going to become under a lot more pressure. There's suddenly a lot of attention being focused on the Spanish league. So whether or not they can hold that position without so many subsidies and, and such control, then you know, that's going to be interesting to see. But all of this, in theory, relates to success on the pitch. So how they fared between the two, I think you should gave it away earlier. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, mean, I, I mean, yeah, you've got two, you've got two pictures up there. Um, one that feels sort of 16 short weeks ago and one that feels 16 very, very long months ago. Um, and, you know, th this is basically what it, what it all comes down to um, and what they both want to achieve. And, you know, Manchester United may have as much revenue as, as they like, but they want, you know, they want that picture back and they want that trophy back. And that's what, that's what it's about. That's what it's driven to achieve all the money from, you know, from, from, from Chevrolet or from TV companies or from Adidas or whatever it is. If the silverware is not there at the end of it, um, certainly most of those 650 million consumers who they count as fans aren't going to be very happy. Yeah, let's just, just keep it away from London. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I can't believe you're saying fans are fickle. Outrageous. Um, <laughs> gentleman at the front. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in asking Dan on, on this subject um, because your business, you, you've uh, like Deloitte works with a lot of other in industries. Um, do you think that there are? Uh, uh, do you think that there are relevant lessons that the that the clubs can learn from industries like retail and uh, banking, um, that that type of uh, business? 
um, that could affect the performance of the club on the pitch? Uh, yes, and I think, but I think those lessons flow both ways. I mean, when I spend time, I quite often will talk to other industries about my experience of, of working in the sports business, and other industries are fascinated by it, and they would, you know, they would absolutely love to have customers who cared as passionately about their company and their brand as football fans care about their club. So it does, it does flow two ways. But yeah, I mean, you know, football as a, as a commercial beast, if you like, has only really been trying to do this for, for 20 years. Um, so there's still, yeah, there's still plenty to learn. Um, but they do do some things very, very well. So oh, oh, we've got two questions. Uh, <laughs> lady at the back on the left. Um, Eileen McManaman and uh, 5T Sports in Vancouver, Canada. Um, as I understand it, Man City has certain categories set aside at the global level, uh, and others are set aside for the various uh, franchises like NYCFC and uh, the Japanese franchise to sell at the national level. Can you give us a breakdown of which ones are held at the global level, aside from Etihad? Which, which are the sponsors? Which, uh, which sponsor categories, yeah, which commercial rights um, categories? Ooh, go right back. Uh, I think it's the more, the more recent ones because it's obviously only been within the, uh, the last, uh, well, I think it was 2013 when, uh, when the uh, New York uh, franchise was acquired, but the team hasn't really uh, got going yet. The season's about to start. Um, and then Melbourne followed and uh, Japan afterwards. So it, it really is more around the sort of Nissan and post-Nissan uh, commercial contracts where they've been on the, the truly global scale. So both clubs, extremely successful. They probably wouldn't be as successful, I think I'm fair in saying this, if they weren't in, well, and I would say this, the, one of the best leagues, if not the best league in the world, which is the Premier, Premier League. What does this mean to the clubs? Um, I think it's just something that the, the, the clubs would agree on, Mark and I would both agree on, is that you know, you, a, bit, a bit of the success of any business is the environment you find yourself in. Um, and you know th th they have got the best possible environment because they're part of the Premier League, which is a is a phenomenon in its own right. And you know, again, going back ten years, you'd probably heard lots of speculation about new owners coming into the Premier League, and it's one of the things they want to do to break up the broadcast model, to you know sell broadcast rights individually. That was certainly the fear, I think, of a lot of people. But actually, it's been proven that, that absolutely one of the smartest things that the Premier League clubs did was keeping that collective broadcast model, keeping that quite even distribution of revenues. So you can have Stoke go to the Etihad and win, or you can have um, you know Burnley um, you know compete on level footing with Manchester United. Or you can have Swansea beat Manchester United Old Trafford on the first day of the season. That's part of what gives it its power, and that's you know other, other leagues don't have that. Yeah, I think I think it, particularly when you look at the Spanish league. I mean, the Spanish league is the only one where they still sell their own individual broadcasting rights, and this means that you get the Real Madrids and the Barcelonas really taking such an advantage over their competition. And I think that will change in the future. I think it's going to have to because that's one of the reasons why the Premier League is so, you know, so popular. It's, you know, they do share the money evenly and it does make it a very interesting competition to watch. In Spain, we pretty much know who's going to come in the top two each year. And I think if, the, if that sales model, uh, the broadcasting rights changes in Spain, then it probably will bring Real Madrid and Barca back a little bit to the pack. Um, so it'll be interesting to see in a few years if they come back to the pack, whether City are behind United or with United. And for, for all the people who sort of you know, bemoan the predictability of the, of the Premier League, I mean, if there's anyone in here who had 
Liverpool to finish second last year and uh, Manchester United to finish seventh. Um, it's a real shame if you thought that was going to happen that you didn't put a few quid on it because <laughs> you wouldn't be sat here at the moment. You'd be sat off on a Caribbean island somewhere enjoying your winnings. So we're going to finish uh, with just a show of hands and then some questions quickly. Sorry. Um, over the next five seasons, which club will be most successful on the pitch? Man United, hands, show of hands. I think that's four, no, no, five, possibly. Push, pushing ten, maybe. Uh, Man City. No. <laughs> we, could, we, we could be here for a very long time. I can if you want. I can keep going. Um, as business models, Man City, more successful, more successful, three, four, five, six, oh, it's like a bidding war. Um, Man United. <laughs> Look, it's not meant to be that technical, so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, I'm just going <laughs> to... Oh, sorry, sorry to suggest. Um, final questions for our panellists before we get to the networking uh, and the drinks, as fun as this is. Uh, it had to be, didn't it? I think it's a very interesting conversation, and that's uh, why I keep asking questions. I think uh, I have two questions, if I may. Um, one is that uh, I think it's very interesting what you mentioned before about the uh, the uh, prediction of fan base, which is 600 million or whatever. You know, um, interesting enough, all major clubs, whether it's Real Madrid or Man U or Man City or maybe Man City, they claim the same. And I think, with all respect for Man, Man U, who has done extremely well on the business model they have. I think you're right in saying that. I think actually they're not doing too, too great when it comes to if the so-called claim 600 million fans are there. I will then question the fans' base. I don't think that's a, f a, a right assumption, and I think we all know that from the research. But my question is just, I mean, is that a fair assumption that actually this is a good business model? Um, a second question, which is kind of in the same uh, perspective, is can you elaborate a bit on the shirts uh, valuations? Because um, it's interesting to say, you know, whenever they buy a new player, that more or less uh, is equivalent to the amount of shirts they're selling. I mean, that math I can't really calculate out. I think that's, that's a wrong assumption there, but maybe you know better because you have the numbers behind you. Yeah, so look, I mean, um, the, on the first point, um, I, I, I'm inclined to agree that um, I've, the 600 million fans number, uh, you know, define fan, as I said at the start, um, is Manchester United one of the best supported clubs in the world? Yes. Do those people care passionately about Manchester United? Yes. Uh, are they, a lot of them, ever going to come and go to a game at Old Trafford? No. So you're not going to get match day out of them. Are they going to watch the game on TV? Possibly, but that deal's all done by the Premier League. What else are you going to sell them? What else are they going to buy? Are they going to buy a genuine shirt? Or are they going to buy one for $5? You know, kind of just depends which, which market you're in, how much status they're attached to it. On the point about shirt sales and do player acquisitions on their own justify shirt sales, uh, there was a fabulous article written on this, I think, just last week that basically debunked that entire theory. And, you know, we've been telling anyone who lasts for the last 20 years, you know, forget about this thing about, you know, clubs make all their money through selling shirts in Asia. It's nonsense. It's not the case. End of. It's just not the way the business model works. What about um, the Real Madrid? Real Madrid came out with a statement saying that 
that they oh, made I'd, it. I'd rather not get into specifics about specific <laughs> clubs, but, but put it, put it this way, I don't think there's, there's ever been a single football player acquisition justified on, 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 on shirt sales, unless you believe that most fans have a shirt for every big player their club has ever signed. They might have bought a shirt anyway with a different player's name on it. Maybe. Any other questions? So the question was, will there be a Premiership game played by either of the two clubs in the next five years, and what will that do to their status? Well, it was mooted, wasn't it? And it got put back in the box pretty quickly. Um, but we're seeing, you know, all sports, you know, we'll go a lot more global. We're seeing NFL games over here, um, pre-season basketball games. You've only got to look at the pre-season tours that pretty much all the top flight uh, European clubs do. I suspect there would be an appetite for it, but it's always going to come with that check back, isn't it, that uh, the football authorities probably don't want it, the football, footballing fans locally don't want it. I would personally say not within five years, but I might be just doing a Dan Jones and find out <laughs> it gets announced tomorrow or here. <laughs> uh, no, I think it's, it's very, very easy to see the appeal of it on, on a load of different levels. Um, but, you know, the, the tricky bit is that the, the sort of game 39, introducing a 39th game into the calendar was sort of knocked over for various reasons, but one of them was a kind of a sporting integrity thing that the balance of play, everyone playing everyone else home in a way is sort of integral to the, to the structure uh, in a way that incidentally it isn't something like American football. Um, so the parallel of an NFL game coming to London is not, is not quite perfect. Um, there's also another thing that makes that parallel not quite perfect is you need to be invited. You need the other country to want you to come and bring your product and put it in their backyard. And one of the big challenges I think that most countries face around the world at the moment is that the Premier League is there on TV and it's therefore quite hard to persuade their local football fans to go and watch their local football. I don't know, there's a lot of countries in the world that would their, their FA would welcome an English Premier League game coming and being played in their backyard. So I don't think they'd be invited and I kind of side with Mark that I don't think it'd happen in the next five years anyway. Any other questions? Hi guys, Adrian Melville, ESPN. Um, just curious if you guys have seen any uh, impact in the, uh, the commercial revenue of both of these teams impacting the individual transfer negotiations uh, when these guys are, are talking with, with players in terms of both uh, the impact of potentially overpaying for certain players and also uh, if these players don't work out when they get to uh, Manchester United or Manchester City uh, trying to sell these players back on the market if they're getting a lower value and, and if the commercial revenue uh, or the amount of commercial revenue has an impact on that. <laughs> not, not particularly, uh, not that I've noticed that may have a difference. I think, I mean, you know, f the football's always been uh, very, very good at um, spending whatever money it gets in on, on players. Um, that's, that's always been the nature of the beast and it, and it continues to be so. And I think agents are very adept at, uh, as are selling clubs, at knowing who they're talking to. Um, and if you were Manchester City a few years ago, um, I'm sure that people looked and thought we should be able to get a good price here. And if you're Manchester United uh, in the aftermath of what happened last season and running into the last couple of weeks this summer transfer window, I'm sure, again, the, the clubs who were selling to them were thinking, you know, this is a very wealthy club who needs our player. So I, I, would, I would think that, uh, you know, they were driving a pretty hard bargain. Um, in terms of uh, when the, the roles are reversed and those clubs are trying to sell, 
Um, I think it does really depend a lot on the individual circumstances of, of, the, of the player being sold and, um, and, and the acquiring club because sometimes those players uh, are sort of leaving quite reluctantly and other, other times you know, they're, they're being manoeuvred towards the door, so it just depends. Thank you all for being such an engaging audience and asking so many questions. Um, really appreciate it. It's late in the afternoon. It's very rare to have such a, a busy session in an afternoon session on the first day of the conference when the drinks are awaiting. Just like to, I think you draw me a round of applause for, for, for Mark and Dan for an enlightening talk. Um, and also, just uh, thanks to uh, Pro Manchester for, for sponsoring this panel session. Um, you know, sounds like there's great things going on in the city. I hope you get to see them tonight. See you at the networking drinks. If you want to hear from more leading sports law experts from around the world, go to lawinsport.com, follow us on Twitter at lawinsport, go to our YouTube page, lawinsport TV, follow us on SoundCloud, or go to iTunes and download our weekly podcast. I hope you have a great week and thank you for tuning in.